Hey there, John. How you doing? It's it's a bright sunny day in New York City. You you look chipper. You look uh, bushy-tailed, bright-eyed, whatever you want to say. As always, you, you sound surprised. I'm always <laughs> bushy-tailed, as you put it. Not exhausted. <laughs> not exhausted watching speech after speech, covering this stuff for the last few days. Um, we're keeping it positive, so no, not exhausted, invigorated. <laughs> but it was, you're right, it was a massive day yesterday of um, speeches, the first day of speeches uh, from leaders in the, what's it called? The Assembly Hall, the Great Hall. I mean, you were there. You tell me, you tell me how it was. Hey, John, this week has been... We'll have to discuss another time when I'm, you know, out of it, uh, because when you've had some therapy, when I've had some therapy, some time to reflect, it's it, it's been a fascinating experience. Uh, I mean, we need not get into uh, the specifics of, you know, covering it as a member of the press, but I, I, there's a lot of stuff happening there that I think our listeners would be be interested. In. I mean, just to peel back the curtains a bit on on what it's like, it, it was jam packed this morning from 9 a.m. When, when the session was gaveled in by Dennis Francis, the, the president. Uh, he, was, he was rather upset with how long it took for everyone to get to their seats. And it, it was just packed all the way through until the end of Biden's speech, which was around 10.30, 10.45. And then we recessed for five minutes. Uh, and the hall never got even halfway full again. There were some interesting speeches too. I mean, there was uh, Erdogan spoke... Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa spoke. And then for even Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky, the hall was pretty much empty. It was sort of strange. Yeah, well, it feels kind of rude when you're watching it, right? Like that people should be there sitting yeah. down and listening to to each speech. I, I noticed um, when Colombian President Gustavo Petro uh, was up to speak, he had to wait like three minutes at the at the podium for the diplomats in the room. And, and, you know, they're the diplomats. They're not the world leaders. They're the kind of functionaries sitting in the room to quieten down, stop laughing. So, so the president of Colombia could give us, give his speech, um, which I found, yeah, I found that kind of, kind of weird, but I, I get, I guess it's par for the course. Um, but I am, I must say a little surprised to hear that it was so empty for Zelensky. I, I kind of thought that um, most countries would want to kind of have, the symbolism of being there and paying attention because it doesn't look great if there's your name placard and 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 there's no one sitting behind it. Um, but I think it's probably also a little bit emblematic of um, how the general vibe of the speeches seemed to go. That there, there wasn't that, that, that to be clear, there was focus on Ukraine, but there wasn't it wasn't kind of wall to wall. There, there wasn't sort of a, 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 like not every country reiterated the same points like. Maybe last year they did, um, and you know I think that's probably by design, at least for the for the U.S. and some of the other countries. I think that's an intentional choice. Um, you know they probably don't want to sound tone deaf about focusing on an issue that gets plenty of coverage already um, when the world has so many other concerns um, affecting so many more countries, right? Yeah, I mean I, I saw some real unga veteran reporters, which mind you, John, I am not, Soon. Uh, who said. One day, oh God, uh, who said it, it, Biden's speech was the most they'd ever heard any U.S. president talk about issues facing the development, the developing world. Lots of Security Council reform chat from pretty much everyone, too. Right. And to your point, John, I mean, the, the developing world tension here, the tension with the developing world was on display for Zelensky, too. He was very careful to make the case that the, the reason the world should care about Russia's invasion is because... 
it exacerbates the the climate challenges that already exist. Here's here's just a a, a little clip of that from his speech this afternoon. Thank God, people have not yet learned to use climate as a weapon. Even though humanity is failing on its climate policy objectives, this means that extreme weather will still impact the normal global life and some evil state will also weaponize its outcomes. And when people in the streets of New York and other cities of the world went out on climate protests, we all have seen them. And when people in Morocco and Libya and other countries die as a result of natural disasters, and when islands and countries disappear underwater, and when tornadoes and deserts are spreading into, into new territories, and when all of this is happening, one unnatural disaster in Moscow decided to launch a big war and kill tens of thousands of people. So that's kind of the new way the argument is taking shape. It's less about threats to the international rules-based order. You know, we still heard plenty of that. But the, the thrust of a lot of the speeches were about tangible impacts on developing countries. Do you think that strategy is effective? Uh, well, let me break that down into two bits. Um, I'm not convinced by Zelensky's argument in that clip that you just played. Um, I think that's a little bit of a stretch to kind of argue the, about the weaponization of climate change. It, it may well happen, but I, I don't think it's going to convince too many folks to get on his side. But I think your, your broader question, the, the general strategy of asking or kind of examining how the war is affecting the lives of millions of people around the world, billions of people around the world, particularly the countries in the global south, that that is a pretty good ploy, I think. Um, you know, I, I heard today from uh, a diplomatic colleague uh, who shall remain unnamed that uh, Ukraine is kind of playing hard to get this week with with a lot of countries um, in terms of getting meetings for bilateral meetings um, because they're really prioritizing the countries that seem to be on the fence about the war. Um, and many of those countries are in the global south. So the Ukrainians are really trying to, you know, put on a charm offensive with them. Um, and that strategy, the 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 kind of avoiding or linking climate change, linking things like the Black Sea Grain Initiative um, to the war or to supporting Ukraine in the war is a smart strategy. Um, I think you, you know you mentioned to me earlier that whenever someone mentioned the Black Sea Grain Initiative and Erdogan, I think, really focused on it, there was a big reaction in the room, right? Um, uh, you, uh, the biggest applause line of the day uh, seemed to be from the Secretary General when he kind of opened proceedings at the very start and said that, he wouldn't give up until Russia lifted its embargo on Ukrainian food exports. Um, so it's obviously a really popular position to be taking with the majority of the, the UN members. Um, and, and, you know, I think we've said previously on this podcast that it's a deal that makes sense for so many people. So um, I've been surprised that it hasn't already been renewed, but maybe this new push, this idea of kind of linking the war to the grain initiative to the global south and kind of a different um I guess, rhetorical strategy to persuade those countries that that might work. You mentioned there that uh, Ukraine's diplomats had a busy schedule. I found that out firsthand. I, I was waiting around outside uh, the building for Dmitro oh, yeah. Kuleba, who is the, the foreign affairs minister for Ukraine. His press person gave me the go ahead. She said he's just going to finish something up and then you can come chat with him. Uh, I waited. 
about five minutes, he came over to me, shook my hand, smiled. I said, do you have a minute? He said, I'm sorry, no press until it's done. He didn't explain what it was, was. <laughs> but I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, you also left out the bit where you said he was smoking a big cigar, which is, uh, I feel like that's a- Also that's, pretty that, cool. That's a pretty cool look, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but John, I mean, so Ukraine, the US, and, and other Western allies, I think they're, like you said, trying to prove that they can walk and chew gum. And, and the prime example that, that springs to mind here, Biden barely talked about China. Really, barely. I mean, here's the extent of what he said about China. Here's the clip. Our shared future. When it comes to China, I want to be clear and consistent. We seek to responsibly manage the competition between our countries so it does not tip into conflict. I've said we are for de-risking, not decoupling with China. We will push back on aggression and intimidation and defend the rules of the road, from freedom of navigation to overflight to level economic playing field that have helped safeguard security and prosperity for decades. But we also stand ready to work together with China on issues where progress hinges on our common efforts. Nowhere is that more critical than accelerating the climate crisis, than, than the accelerating climate crisis. So that's it. If you had your stopwatch out, you would have seen 45 seconds in a 30-minute speech devoted to arguably the biggest geopolitical challenge the U.S. faces right now. Wow. What do you make of that? Uh, I, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, if I was advising Biden, I would say it's not really the forum to kind of prosecute the U.S.'s um, more controversial or more kind of contentious geopolitical strategies. Um, you know, many, many countries in that room are not necessarily on either the U.S. or China's side. Uh, so I don't know that Biden's arguments would necessarily... Um, find a receptive audience beyond what he just said there, which is the idea of like, hey, we're not trying to cause trouble. We're, we're you know, we're just adjusting a few things. Um, but, you know, I think it, it's kind of keeping in what we said Biden is doing, um, which is talking about climate change, appealing to the issues that affect most of the people in the room or most of the countries in the room. So I think it was a smart choice. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that he's not going to turn around and start speaking about China tomorrow in a press conference, yeah. but it's just not the right place I, I don't think I totally understand I, I just thought and, and this is some editorializing here I, I just thought the speech writing was almost too on the nose it was like he, they knew exactly what mm -hmm. countries in the global south wanted to hear and and dropped everything to give it to them yeah well gotta know your audience right <laughs> well I mean he he uh, segued so nicely into climate change so I, I think we should do the same because that that really was the top focus for today Here's just a, a super quick sample of what leaders had to say. First, President Lula of Brazil speaking through a translator. Mr. President, acting against climate change involves thinking about tomorrow and facing historical inequalities. Rich countries grew based on a model with high rates of climate damaging gas emissions. The climate emergency makes it urgent to correct course and implement what has already been agreed. There is no other reason why we speak of common but differentiated responsibilities. It is the vulnerable populations in the global south who are most affected by the loss and damage caused by climate change. 
Yeah, I, I'm always uh, I'm always impressed by these translators uh, <laughs> nailing nailing these speeches all day. But uh, I, and I couldn't tell, couldn't tell. Yeah, he he was particularly enthusiastic, but it, it matched the energy of the leader he was uh, interpreting for. Uh, up next, John, here's Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa. We call on the partners of the wealthier countries to meet the financial commitments they have made. It is a matter of great concern to us from the Global South that these wealthier countries in the Global North have failed to meet the undertakings they made to provide $100 billion a year for developing economies to take climate action. This must be changed and the money must be made available in the interest of development. And to round things out, here's President and Biden year, again. The world's on track to meet the climate, fun, the cli climate finance pledge that made under the Paris Agreement $100 billion to raise collectively. But we need more investment from public and private sector alike, especially in places that have contributed so little to global emissions, but face some of the worst effects of climate change, like the Pacific Islands. I'm not surprised by any of that. There's a huge focus on the Climate Action Summit, uh, the Climate Action Summit, sorry, a bit of a tongue twister, which is uh, kicking off later today. Um, and generally, this is the one issue that I think every country kind of is facing. They, you know, they're facing it to se separate degrees, but everyone kind of agrees that climate change and climate action is needed. So I'm not surprised that it dominated the speeches yesterday. Um, I think it's interesting that so much of the attention was paid to financing uh, for, for climate action. Um, and and the, the sort of the message, I think, was kind of just like, we've got the technology, we know how to do this stuff, um, we just need money. And that money should come from the rich developed nations, which have kind of built themselves on fossil fuels that we now need to get off. Um, but, you know, the, I think... This is just another example of in in our you know emerging multipolar world, this regional world. Um, every country is having a say, and every country kind of matters more than it did maybe in in a in a unipolar or a bipolar world. Um, and the global south is demanding, or at least you know politely requesting, <laughs> that the big countries, the developed countries, listen to them, pay attention to them, and help them. Well, John, that just about sums up Tuesday. We've got more speeches today, Wednesday. So two questions for you. Looking at the list of speakers today, who are you most looking forward to and, and what would you want me to ask them? Oh, you put me on the spot, uh, Ethan. Um, oh, it's only just the same question I've asked you the last two days. I know, and I keep I keep forgetting to prepare for it. Um, <laughs> I think tomorrow's agenda, I'm most looking forward to hearing from the South Korean leader. Uh, I think we haven't heard from... Uh, a major Asian country yet uh, at, at this hunger. And I think that could be very interesting given that's where, um, you know, so much of the world's geopolitical competition is happening right now. It'll be interesting to get his views. Um, and I'm also, and this is a, this is one out of left field. I'm kind of interested to hear from the Zambian leader, um, particularly because they, uh, they restructured their debt earlier this year. Um, and it was kind of seen as a, a bit of a test case for the international community on whether whether they could kind of get together and, and help these kinds of countries restructure their debt. So, mm. And so I guess if you can get the Zambian uh, president in a room, I would ask, uh, well, you should ask him, um, 
I know. How was his experience? How did he manage to pull that off? That's a that's a that's a feat that a lot of countries haven't been able to to do. They haven't been able to restructure their debt. So, what's the secret? What's his secret sauce? Oh, that's a fantastic question, and and one that probably this time won't get me kicked out of the building. So, thanks for that, John. <laughs> Very welcome, Ethan. Mm-hmm. 